0: Today, we talk wildlife photography with Juan Pons on Behind the Shot. Hi, welcome to Behind the Shot. I'm Steve Brazzle. This is the show where we try and get inside the mind of great photographers by taking a closer look behind one of their shots from conception to completion and all the stories and challenges that happen in between the website for this. And there will be a blog post associated with this episode is behind the And of course, you can find us in any podcast or any podcast application that you choose to so make sure that you find us uh, again. My guest today is somebody I've wanted to have on for a long time. I'd like to welcome Juan Pons to the show. Juan, how are you, buddy?
1: I'm doing great. Thank you
0: for having me. How are you doing? I'm doing quite well. I've known of you. We've never met until today, but I've known of you for quite a long time because you are a longtime podcaster. I was a regular listener of the digital photo (laughs) experience with you and and Rick Salmon, our our mutual friend. And you've been around not only the podcast space and photography space for a number of years, but the education space for a number of years. So before we get into your photo today, I want to talk about you just a little bit. First of all, you are born in Puerto Rico, correct? That's right. How long have you been in the States? Well, longer than I've been, than I was in Puerto Rico. My whole family is still there.
1: So I'm the only one that's in the States. Um, But I came to the U.S. to go to high school, actually. So, wow, since 1986, I think is when I came to the States. Okay, so you've been here for a while and you're, Are you North Carolina, something like that? Well, I was. I lived in North Carolina for I lived in Massachusetts in North Carolina for about
0: 12 years, but I am now in Maine. Oh, you know what? That's interesting. Are you anywhere near Bar Harbor? I am about an hour away from Bar Harbor. Oh, I see, last fall, I think it was October that we went. It might have been September, but I think it was beginning of October. My wife and I went to Vermont. Uh And we did, we actually landed in Boston to see a a friend. And then we rented a car. We basically drove the whole state of Vermont, which takes like five minutes. And then (laughs) from there, uh, we stayed in a place, by the way, called Woodstock in Vermont. That was just amazing. I I know it. Uh, Great B&B there. Then we, from there, drove to Bar Harbor and we did Acadia National Park.
1: Beautiful spot. I love Acadia. I've been there. I've been going to Acadia probably for about 20 years or more. And I don't get tired of it
0: it, the, I'm colorblind. And in that park at that time of year, I could actually see the colors. I mean, <laughs> awesome. it is, it is gorgeous. So you, from a photography point of view, you are a published photographer. You mainly focus on nature and wildlife. And I just want to talk a little bit about where you've been published. Cause there's a number of magazines where you've been published in, right? So give us kind of an idea of some of the outlets that your sh- shots have been seen in.
1: Well, you know, the interesting thing is, you know, back in the day, back many years ago, I used to concentrate a lot on getting published. I've worked mostly with educational type publications. So, for example, I've been published in CR Magazine, a number of articles on CR Magazine. I've been published in Wildlife in North Carolina, which was another educational magazine published uh, by the Department of Wildlife Conservation in North Carolina. Um, And and, and a number of others, including... um, uh, 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 photography, what was it? American photo, I believe it was, uh, another photography related magazine, but I, and I also concentrate a lot on selling prints, um, to private collectors and individuals. But nowadays, most of what I focus on really is on education is, uh, running workshops throughout the, throughout the world, as well as education online and on, uh, on my new youtube channel which i i hope we'll talk about uh, yeah
0: a and later. and on youtube you're Juan Pons. that's right and then your workshops that's people fun. can find at your website which is one Juan, uh that's I've right i've been putting it up underneath you but i'm for some reason blanking on it let me pull it up here really quick <laughs> yeah it's uh one not dot com shoes. org com, yeah. the,
1: dot com is taken by a very famous opera singer uh okay. same name
0: well Good person to give it up to then. That's Uh, right. One that you didn't mention was Audubon magazine, uh, which I want to get out there. And here's one of the things which I find, it's not that it's uncommon, I don't think, with with wildlife and nature photographers, but I think people approach it differently. And I love the fact that you are a very, very strong advocate for conservation, for habitat conservation.
1: Well, I mean, and that's really what propelled me to work with a lot of these magazines because – Um, You know, I helped in a number of campaigns that they had to protect different habitats, especially this is uh, a lot of this happened while I was living in North Carolina in parts. There were a number of um, incredibly important habitats, especially for birds that were being endangered by ill-conceived ideas. So I worked very closely with Audubon in North Carolina um, and the Nature Conservancy um, in Sierra to actually put together... You know, uh, a, a PR blitz, if you will, and convince the people to support the the preservation of those really special places. And that's really how I got into publishing because you know, it was really through my conservation efforts. Um, I've always been interested in wild places and in wildlife and in nature. So for me, you know, seeing these places that I love, that I visited and I photographed quite often, being threatened by ill-conceived ideas uh, really got me going. And that's what uh, propelled me to get published
0: that much in a lot of those magazines. And and you see, once you visit some of these places, you do, at times at least, it can be readily obvious some of the policy issues that are, that are affecting these places. And sometimes it's not the policy issues. Sometimes the policy issues are correct. It's the management of those policies. So I love to see yes. that- that you're involved with that. And so that people know, if you're watching the video feed, this podcast is available both in video feed in your podcast app or audio feed in your podcast app. If you're watching the video feed, I did just put uh, Juan's YouTube channel up on screen underneath him. It's it's Juan Pons. And his website again is is JuanPons.org. So make sure you go check each of those things out. YouTube is not your only video outlet though. As an educator, you mentioned that you do workshops again. Available information on those on your your mm-hmm. uh, website, but you teach Lightroom, you teach video, you you've got a number of classes out there. I noticed that you had a class. I don't know how old it was, but you've got a class at Photoshop Cafe. Our friend Colin Smith. That's right. You've got classes at MyBlueprint dot That's
1: right, and those um, are
0: both Lightroom and wildlife photography. Okay, so a little bit of everything. But what are your workshops focus on?
1: Really, um, it's nature. It's both wildlife and landscape photography, anything related to nature. My, my passion is really wildlife photography, so that's what I'd like to concentrate on. But, you know, wildlife photography is very difficult. Um, even in a, um, you know, a place like Yellowstone that I go to every year, it's still, it's a challenging process. Um, you've got to visit them quite often. you got to be prepared to shoot wildlife. you got to know how to shoot wildlife. You have to ride, have the right equipment or whatnot. So, you know, I try to run as many wildlife workshops as I can, but a lot of people also just like to be out in nature, photograph different aspects of nature as well as landscape. So it's really anything having to do with nature, but focus primarily on um, wildlife and and the landscape.
0: And and I've got your, your workshop page up in front of me and I'm looking at some of the titles. So you've got Yellowstone in winter, which, by the way, if you jump to that before we get to the shot, the actual image he uses for Yellowstone in winter is the shot that we're going to be talking about today. Uh, You've also got Alaska in winter. You've got, uh, is it Lofoten? Uh, Lofoten, yeah. Lofoten Islands in winter. And also you've got a Cuba workshop that you do. I mentioned the podcasting. uh, So he's out there. Go find Juan, give him some love, follow him on social media. We'll be putting those up and we'll mention them all at the end of the show. Before we bring up the shot and get into your photography, as it were, I do want to mention to people, I've started a new Flickr group for Behind the Shot. If you go to Flickr and you search groups for Behind the Shot, you'll find it. Head on over there, join us over there. We've got a few members now. I just started it, but I'm hoping to build it up because my goal is to use that Flickr group down the road for some things that we do on the show. In fact, I've been talking with my buddy Don Komarechka about doing some joint things using that Flickr group. So head on over there, sign up for Flickr if you're not a member, and then you know join the group and we'll, we'll have some fun over there. So let's talk about photography with you. Beautiful. I'm always interested when I, when I look through, and people who listen regularly know that I do this, as I'm picking shots or, or working with my guests to pick a photograph that we're going to discuss, I have this habit of going through their portfolio and what I'm doing in the portfolio is, well, I mean, most of the time, it's I mean, just, losing in other time words, going, you're doing your homework, right? Yeah. So that's good. I mean, a lot of times it's just me going, Oh man, I really suck. <laughs> but the other thing that I do is I look for consistencies, right? Every, every photographer I think really does, even though they may not know it great and not great photographers, we all have, a way that we see the world, uh, what I call kind of your voice. And as I look for consistencies in people's images, it's kind of interesting the stories that they tell. And your photography is this type of nature and wildlife photography that really focuses to me, not on the subject of the bird or the bison, or it's more the environment. Right. It's your 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 images tend to be very inviting and make me feel like I'm in the scene. So I'm kind of curious, what drew you to this type of photography, nature and wildlife?
1: Well, I mean, that was very observant. Uh, You know, a lot of people don't get that. And I strive to do that, to not just include not just create a portrait of our subjects, but really put the subjects in the environment, because that tells you a more complete story, tells you a little bit about the subjects that that you're photographing. Um, it really, for me, so you know, I, I guess I'll go back a little further, probably than most people would care to know. But I was a photographer. I've been a photographer a very long time. I got into photography um, because I had a really inspirational teacher in high school. That uh, in my high school at the time I had a photography problem. That's how I got into it. I was a photographer through high school. A photographer through college. Um, you know, I was the official, actually, uh, the official photographer at my university. Um, which was you know, great, but it was mostly people in, and uh, uh, an events, event photography. It was a more photojournalistic kind of photography. Um, you know. And then from there, I went into a career in uh, engineering in, like as a computer engineer. And I was living in Massachusetts. And then I moved down to North Carolina. And I was sick of living in, as much as I love Boston, I was sick of living in the city and I wanted to move out into the country. Um, And I was fortunate enough to buy a piece of property that was at the time uh, uh, five acres in size. And we built a house there. Well, yeah, I mean, that was my first one. The second one was 21 acres. I mean, that's how much I loved it. The fact that I was out in the middle of the woods and I had tons of animals coming in through my property. Even when I had the little five acres, I say little, but, you know, compared to to what a lot of other folks had in North Carolina, it 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 was pretty small, but still had lots and lots of wildlife coming through. And I've always had a passion for wildlife. I was into wildlife and nature photography, just not all that serious. Um, and I picked up back into photography with a, you know, with a renewed vigor because I, I thought photography is going to allow me to spend more time out in the field and observe and absorb the animals and the environment that I'm seeing. Interesting. So it's really kind of a means to an end. It wasn't the end itself. It wasn't the photography itself. It was really more, you know, that I knew that if I was going to go out and observe uh, all this wildlife, if I just sat in a chair and just observed them, I would probably lose interest pretty quickly, right? Because I, you know, patience—I I didn't have the patience to sit right. there for hours and if I did wasn't do anything. Um, whereas the photography kind of gave me that, you know, thing to do, if you will, to actually observe and participate, you know, and fully absorb what I was seeing. So that's what really got me back into. Into photography, so I think that's where, you know, the focus on not just the animals, not just creating a portrait or you know what I term a a bird on a stick, um, but (laughs) trying to include my (laughs) subjects in in their environment to tell a little bit more of a story, to tell you a little bit more about them. Well, see, not just a a pretty shot.
0: Well. Well, I would argue it is still a pretty shot, right? Right, right, right. But it's not just a pretty shot. I get it because, again, looking through your portfolio, and and people, if you have not done this, find a photographer that you love, go to their website and study the pictures, not what you like, what you don't like, what they have in common. Everybody has a common thread. Almost every photographer, there's a few exceptions, but almost every photographer I've ever run across that I admire and I go look at their website, I suddenly... I see something different in their shots because now I'm looking at those shots as a group and finding the common voice that that photographer has. And that kind of does lead us to this shot because this shot is from Yellowstone, if I'm not mistaken. And as, as I bring it up, I'm going to do what I do every show and every show I say the same sentence. And that is I really suck at describing pictures in voice. So if you're listening to the audio podcast Please run to BehindTheShot.tv, click the link for this episode, look at the shot so that you understand what we're talking about. And while you're there, you can read some stuff that I wrote about Juan. You can look at a small gallery of other shots that Juan has taken. But most importantly, you'll understand what we're talking about in this shot, because this image really kind of sums up what you said about wanting to capture not just the subject, not just the bird on a stick. But the environment that they're in, and there's a number of pieces in this image that kind of, this is actually one of the images that made me think that, right? And I want to touch on each of those things that kind of takes it from just being a picture of a herd of bison walking to more of that storyline. So first of all, I know that you don't normally name your shots, but you do have a name for this image. What is it? And it's bison procession bison procession. So let's talk about this image for a second. The bison are walking right at you. I mean like they are walking right down the barrel of your lens. They're in the middle of Yellowstone, but it's winter, they're in the snow, right? And behind them is a hill, almost looks like it could be a ski slope, right? It's a hill with trees. That's one of the intriguing things in me in this shot. I'll get on that in a minute. You can see probably seven or eight bison. I think I counted seven, but I think there's eight in there. It almost feels like a rule of thirds, which is interesting. It could be more though. But the front bison is so in focus and so sharp and you see the snow has fallen on the bison's face, right? And he's looking right at you. So let's get technical first. For this shot, what camera did you use? I looked up the EXIF data if you don't have it, but I, I think you said that you do. What camera and lens combination and what was your exposure for this shot?
1: Um, well, this was a, uh, this was back when I was shooting Canon. Um, so this is a 5D Mark III uh, camera. I was using a 200 to 400 millimeter lens of Canon. It was actually very newly released and it was one of the first times I was... Ever using that lens? Um, I'm shooting, um, believe it or not, handheld, kinda, and I'll explain that in a minute.
0: Yeah, that's um, an shooting. interesting. <laughs>
1: um, th- this is ISO 800, 1/640th of a second at f8. And what, um, what
0: millimeter are you at?
1: I'm at 200 millimeter.
0: Okay, so um, I gotta, I gotta 200 touch 200 on this. Lens. You're at only 200 millimeters. Now, I shoot 200 millimeters all the time. You're pretty close at 200 millimeters, unless you crop this thing down to 500 pixels left out of your 5D Mark III. How close are you?
1: Well, yeah. So I was really too close. It really turns out. <laughs> okay. So, so, so let me let me I guess let me set the stage here. So here I am right? I'm I'm actually leading a workshop and I have a bunch of people, I have eight clients with me that I'm directing and trying to get them to make this shot. And the way that we're making this shot is that, you know, we're in a vehicle, we're, we're in a snow, uh, uh, in a snow coach. And, you know, what we do is we're in a snow coach, we move ahead, we all get out as the bison are coming towards us. Um, and we go and shoot and then I'm there making sure that we're not letting the bison get too close to us. When they, they start getting a little too close, I get people back in the snow coach and we move again so that, you know, we're never encroaching on them. We're never in any harm's way or anything. Right, right, right. You know, and we do that a couple of I'm times. I'm sorry, you're looking
0: we- at this shot, you look like you might have been in harm's way. Well, so,
1: you know, once once I got all my clients, kind of all got the shots or whatnot, I said, well, I got to get a shot. And someone had lent me this 200 or 400 that I'd never used before. Um, and, you know, I knew I needed to steady it. So what I did is I laid down in the snow on my back and, you know, propped up my knees. And I put the lens kind of between my knees and used my body as a tripod to stabilize the lens. Because if you know the 200, 400 is actually quite big, heavy lens. Right, right, right. Um, and there wasn't a lot of light. That's why I'm shooting at F8 because it's actually snowing quite hard. And because I wasn't familiar with this lens, you know, I started maybe at 400, but as the bison kept approaching, um, you know, I kept zooming out and zooming out and zooming out. And by that, by this time, most of my clients, if not all of my clients, had already gotten back into the snow coach. So I was out there by myself until someone yells at me, you know, to get up. Because the bison are like twenty feet away, but
0: you're literally. looking through the lens and didn't realize it.
1: Yeah, I was looking through the lens and I didn't realize it. I didn't realize how close they H- were. How close did you say they were? How many feet? So they, they were probably about twenty feet, twenty to thirty feet, which is definitely a big no-no.
0: How okay? Uh, so this is not a type <laughs> of photography that I shoot. So ignore my my you know ridiculously obvious questions. I don't know how fast bison move, how fast, if he wanted to, if that front guy if I, wanted, if wanted to get to, you, how toast. fast could he have covered 20 feet? Oh, uh, in in a, in a second or two. So they're quick. Bison
1: can run very, very fast. They can also jump quite high as well. Um, and they're very, very, very strong. This this guy, you know, weighs over 2,000 pounds easily Um so, yeah, I mean, he really wanted, I could be toast. And the nice thing about these guys is that, you know, they were not, um, uh, alarmed at all. And they were just moving kind of in a steady pace, you know, they were trying to cover some ground. So right. they were not in any hurry. They were just moving from one, uh, grazing field to another one. So, um, but you know, but if for some reason, you know, bison are unpredictable. they're wildlife, they're all unpredictable. Um, if for some reason the bison decided that he didn't like me, I mean, he could have trampled me, and I wouldn't be here talking to you. That's
0: for well, sure. Well, and and I do want to clarify: we are saying bison because these Correct. are American bison. Correct. They are. Some people are going to look at this and go, "Oh, he photographed buffalo." No, they're not buffalo. In America, we have bison, uh, right. not right. buffalo. Generally, uh, they're not natives.
1: They, yeah. The 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 thing is, you know, they they really the names are interchangeable. But the real name is bison. So, for example, the genus is or the scientific name is bison bison. Um, but in America, there's been a tradition of calling them buffalo. But they're not buffalo. You know, they're not related buffalo to Buffalo have
0: bigger horns, is my understanding. So,
1: yeah, I mean, in Buffalo, there, there are no buffalo in in, in in North America.
0: In North America, there are Asia, as I recall? Correct. Yeah, okay. in so, so, <clears>
1: Africa <throat> and other places. But so the, the, these are, you know, the real name is bison.
0: So I want to talk about, you said that it's, you know, you're at F8 and that it's fairly dark and there's a lot of snow falling. But here's what's interesting to me is I'm looking at this exposure. ISO 800, F8 at 640th. I understand what you think is dark is dark. But for me, that actually seems like a pretty good amount of light to be able to get 640th of a second at F8 and only have... Uh, ISO 800 that's that's actually to me not bad what was interesting when I looked at the EXIF data correct me if I'm wrong again but you shot this in aperture priority mode right now what that says to me is you're shooting these bison walking across a snowy plane and you wanted you had the choice in aperture priority of setting your shutter speed and you chose 1 640th that says to me of your exposure triangle that was the most important piece to you was getting 1 sixth fortieth which seems higher than you would need. Am I wrong? Well, yes and no. So if you, for example, look at the bison, the, the, the front two bison,
1: right? there is a lot of motion that's being captured there. you see the foot, the hoof on the, on the lead bison is off of the ground, and there's snow kind of being kicked off. You look on the bison that's on the left, there's quite a bit of snow also being kicked off by the bison. So you do want a certain amount of speed to be able to freeze that motion. And so you get some detail there, Um, as well as the hairs as they're moving. You know, those hairs, they they have pretty long hair. They they kind of swing and move. If I didn't have a fast enough shutter speed, you know, I would get some motion blur. Some
0: motion blur. Okay, that makes sense. Okay, so then answer this one. And I think I know the answer. You're going to tell me when I'm wrong. You're at EV, again, aperture priority mode, but you're using exposure compensation at plus one. Right. And my guess Again, not being a landscape or a snow photographer. My guess is that's because, as we all know, when you're using an in-camera meter, the white snow will confuse your meter and exposure. So in an aperture priority mode, by putting it at plus one, that compensates for it seeing the white and trying to darken it. Am I correct?
1: Partly, Yes. So that's part of the equation. So making sure that that snow is white, right? The camera tends to darken the snow, make it look gray and kind of muddy. So you want to give it some exposure compensation for that. But the other aspect of this is that when you're shooting in aperture priority or shutter priority, I shoot aperture priority 99% of the time. I'm used to it. I use exposure compensation.
0: Rick Salmon does the same thing. He he tells me all the time he's in aperture priority a lot.
1: Right. I mean, and, and I can go probably in an hour long diatribe as to why average priority for me is the best thing, especially when things are moving quickly. But, um, but the other aspect of this is that, you know, when I look at a scene and that, you know, this was, I ingrained this in my brain when I was shooting film, I'm looking at the scene and I'm trying to, I'm separating the scene into uh, luminosity values. So, you know, I'm looking at darks versus lights. I'm always exposing for the highlights because I don't want to blow up my highlights um, but I'm also taking into account what percentage of my scene is bright versus dark. And that is going to influence the amount of exposure compensation I'm going to be giving. So bison are typically very dark. So what's going to happen is because I have a large amount of bison here um, and it's occupying especially the center portion of my frame, the camera's going to look at that dark bison and it's going to want to jack up the exposure, right? Right. Um, to compensate for that for that dark in the bison itself, so that's another piece of the puzzle that I'm trying to compensate for. As so,
0: well. so you're saying the camera is going to try and darken it because of the white snow, but brighten it because of the dark bison? Correct. Okay. So
1: you got to think about the percentages, right? You got to think about the percentages. You know, in this case, you know, I have about a 50 50 of white versus dark. So yeah. the me, it's going to be almost spot on. So really, my compensation is going to be focusing more on trying to get the snow nice and white. If I was shooting a scene where the bison was taking up 75% of the scene, I would probably have to give a negative exposure compensation. Because otherwise, my snow would be blown out.
0: Well, but, but in this particular case, one of the other things I love about this image is because the bison has so many different tonal values— just in a single bison. So I was, before I ever record, I start doing the YouTube poster that I'm going to use for this image that has text on it. And trying to place text over these bison is really hard (laughs) because they have light, they have dark, they have super dark shadows. I ended up just going with the white area in the bottom left corner to put some text in. But in doing the plus one here, you've managed to capture detail, like unbelievable detail even in the darkest areas of hair on the bison's head or even around the bison's eye which i absolutely love the other thing there's a couple things about this image i think are brilliantly done by the way is this montana or wyoming this wyoming most of yellowstone is in wyoming all right so the depth of field on this is literally spot on what you needed at, at the f8 because F8 at 200 millimeters, it sounds like that would be fairly shallow, but according to the EXIF data, it estimates it at roughly about four feet of depth of field, so about 1.8, 1.18 meters. With right. that in mind, when you really look at this, the head's in focus, the back of the head and the top of the hump are in focus, the horns are in focus. I mean, seriously, it looks like this guy's looking right at you. It's pretty wild. The feet are mostly in focus. And then one of the things I dig, which also, by the way, gets to that shutter speed conversation, now that I think about it, is there's a – if you're a skier at all, you'll know what I mean. But when you're out in the snow and somebody's walked through or skied by snow, the pieces of snow that come up then freeze a little bit and you get this kind of chunky look of snow, these these almost rocks of snow. And you can see that next to the front bison. And here's why I love that. Without that, with a shallower depth of field or a slower shutter speed, the entire snow area would have been a smooth white like it is in the back right. But by seeing the chunkiness, it adds a texture and a depth. It's almost like food, adding texture to food with chips or something. I love that. Right. I mean, if
1: if, if we didn't see that, if if the snow was perfectly smooth, it would be a completely different scene because – you would, you would only see white, right? You would right. want to have that texture. That adds a lot to the scene because it's it sets, again, the environment and the sense of place well, where the bison are.
0: And you commented on the snow, and there's something that's interesting is this snow, There, I, I don't see any clip in the whites in this image. Now, in many ways, that can sometimes... You know, getting really up to the edge of clipping adds contrast, and it means you're using the full zero to 255 as far as scale is concerned. But here, nothing appears to even be really near 255. I'm sure there's small pieces that are in the bottom left or or upper right. Mm -hmm. But that adds this, that that accentuates the snow falling and the difficulty to see through it, which I, I just think adds so much to the shot. I'm curious when you're walking, when, when you're driving in your little vehicle up here and you're laying down, are you trying to hide from this guy or are you right out in front of him? And it's like, Oh no, no, you see me. I don't care.
1: I'm out and I'm out in the open. I'm out in the field. I mean, I am, you know, like I said, I would be like a speed bump to, to this guy. Um, so no, there's nothing protecting me. My vehicle, which is not little, is actually a pretty big uh, snow coach. Is probably about, you know, 20 feet, 20, 30 feet behind me. And then, you know, when I first got out, I was probably about 100 feet from these bison um, as they were starting to come towards me, maybe 150 feet from the bison as they were starting to come towards me.
0: But that tells me if you're 20 feet from him and the coach is 20 feet behind you, if he ran, you got a long way to run to get back in oh, the Oh,
1: absolutely. Not only that, remember, I have to get up. I'm laying on my back in the snow with a big, heavy lens.
0: You're a gutsy man, my friend. So Well,
1: it was, that was not, I did not mean to do that. I want to make it clear. I just, you know, because <laughs> it was a lens I wasn't familiar with, <laughs> I didn't realize that how close these guys were getting.
0: So, do not try this at home. This is being done by stuntmen. Yeah, this was irresponsible of me, actually. So yes. when when you are doing a shot like this, right when when you're when you're going out into the wild and you're trying to shoot this wildlife that has so much, I mean, really, even the fur on this animal has dynamic range in it. Mm-hmm. When you're trying to do that, do you ever add light to an image, like artificial light? Because I'm looking at this this image again and I'm looking at the shadows to try and judge where the light was. And the light was pretty much straight overhead. It might have been a little bit camera right, but it's looking at the bison shadows. It's pretty straight overhead as though it would be harsh light, right? If you add light ever, how would you do it? So um, I I did. But you, let, me, let me talk about this image in
1: particular first. So this is one of the things I love about doing um, snow photography or photography during snow because guess what? The snow, you have a humongous reflector underneath you. So you could be in full sun and you have soft shadows because Mm. that sun is being reflected off the snow and as like a humongous reflector underneath your subject, lighting up the bottom and softening that dynamic range, softening those shadows. Um, It used to be, you know, back in the film days and back in the early days of digital, Um, before cameras, you know, digital cameras uh, uh, started um, gaining lots of dynamic range, that, yes, I would always have a flash with me. I would have a flash on my camera with a lot of times with a better beamer, if you know what that is, um, to fill in the shadows, so to speak, and soften a lot of those uh, of that uh, of those of the of the shadow that was being cast by the sun, and also to impart a little bit of catchlight on the eyes, bringing some light underneath the heads, underneath the chin, and, and so forth. But nowadays, with the dynamic range of the of our cameras, I do most of that in post processing, and I don't mean by adding artificial light, but really by adjusting my tonal curve, as well as using the shadow sliders. Now. What I think what's important here, we, we kind of have danced around the subject a little bit. We talked about the exposure. We talked about how I did plus one exposure compensation and how I exposed for the highlights, right? Right, right. In, in, this, in a situation like this, exposing for the highlights is insanely important, very, very important. Why is that? It's because, as you may know, noise lives in the shadows, right? Noise likes to live in the shadows. When you take an image and you, have, you, you move that shadow slider to the right, and you try to bring light into those pairs of shadows, the noise comes out. You start it seeing It becomes
0: majorly amplified.
1: It, it majorly amplified. So by moving and exposing to the right, which is another word of saying exposing for the highlights, by exposing to the right, what you're doing is you're bringing in as much light into those shadows. So that when you do bring that image into the digital darkroom, you don't have to bring as much light into those shadows. In a situation like this, you have to bring quite a bit of light into those shadows because the dynamic range between this sunlit snow and the, you know, the bottom of our bison that's really dark, it's, it's huge, it's beyond what the camera can capture, really. So what you're trying to do is move that, that histogram as right. much to the right as possible without blowing out the highlight. And that's going to allow you to then bring some light into those shadows while controlling as much as possible the noise.
0: See, and I, I, to me, the phrase exposed to the right or exposed for the highlights I have in what I shoot, there's so much dynamic range that even that can be difficult because you're always going to have clipped whites and clipped blacks. The dynamic range is so high on a concert stage. So I reword that phrase to me in a way that makes sense. And that is expose for post-production. Mm -hmm. So exposed to give yourself, depending on the subject that you're shooting, exposed to give yourself the most latitude when you get into post. For some people, that may be give yourself the most ability to recover highlights. And if you lose the blacks, who cares? For other Mm -hmm. people, it's exposed to give yourself the most ability to recover those shadows because shadows will bring the noise back. There's there's a couple of composition things in this shot I mentioned early. And I want to talk about them real quick the background, again, with the snow falling, you've got the standard 3D natural occurrences that happen in depth with your eyes. So there's a hill in the background I mentioned that has trees on it, but there's no trees near them. The the trees, compositional wise, all appear behind them like a nice backdrop. If there was sky... If that was not a hill and it was all even plain, it wouldn't give them the anchor and backdrop that this background has. But also, the background is trees and yet they've lost saturation. Again, a natural occurrence of depth in a picture. That's one of the reasons you can tell when people swap out skies is because there are certain things that naturally happen as things go into the distance. They become softer, they become less saturated, things like that. In this case with the subjects, the bison, our friends, you can't say to them, could you guys do me a favor? You're a little too tight. Could you stagger, let's have you over here. You can't do that. It's a moving herd of animals. So when you're photographing them, since you can't pose them as it were, although if you could, that would make you special. Since you can't (laughs) pose them, what are you looking for compositionally through the lens and when you're culling in post for, for this shot? So,
1: yeah, I mean, there's a couple of things here, like you mentioned, you know, the fact that I do have an interesting background, it's not just a white sky. Um, one of the things that works from that perspective on the hill is that you can see on, especially on the left-hand side, I do have a nice open space. I don't have trees coming down to, you know, the the, the end of the road, if you will. or, the, which, or the
0: which opens up that it goes back farther.
1: Exactly. It gives you a much more sense of three dimensionality into the, in the image. Um, So you can actually feel that, you know, how But are you thinking that that when
0: you're looking through the lens?
1: Absolutely. You know, that's like you said before, I cannot pose these guys. So what the only thing that I can do is I need to move. I need to move myself or move my camera in such a way to um, change the uh, arrangement between my subject and its background. And often moving a little bit to the left or a little bit to the right or moving a lot to the left or getting down on my belly or trying to stand up on the roof. But while you're
0: doing that, see, you're like me, where I have to worry about mic stands coming out of people's heads, right? You have to think during composition, what makes the right composition. But again, you mentioned earlier the hoof off the ground, which is a, a common rule when you're shooting an animal, a horse, whatever. You've almost got, again, it's hard to count them, but it feels like a rule of odds, right? Right. You're thinking about all of that. Do you, do you scout this location? In other words, before that vehicle pulled up, did you know, oh, here's the spot. I've already been here. It's got the hill in the background. Or was this ad lib?
1: So really, I mean, it, 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 in a way, it's both. And here in Yellowstone, I've been conducting winter workshops in Yellowstone for 16 years. So I know this place like the back of my hand. So I know the locations that work best for, for this type of shot. But, you know, there's a huge element of luck, right? Because I can't tell the bison, you know, can you be here at a certain, you know, this time so that we can shoot you guys? Coming across? You could. You, <laughs> you could, but they won't listen to you. So yeah. it, doesn't, it doesn't matter.
0: They tend to so, be stubborn.
1: So that's, so there's that, that you, you know the areas, but at the same time, you know, this is what's going through my head, you know, at a thousand miles an hour, is I'm thinking compositionally, the elements that I'm looking at, both of my subject and the background. Because, you know, as I tell my students in all of the workshops is, I could have the most compelling subject. And if I don't have a supporting background or a background that's distracting, or just doesn't add anything to the image, I I won't even bother taking an image. Now, if it was Sasquatch, I'd still take the picture. But if anything else, you know, the background to me, the environment is just as important. So what I'm doing is I am paying attention, not just to my subject, but to the background. And what can I do moving myself to position my subjects in such a way that they complement that background? Um, You know, and this happens very, very quick. And you, you, you get, you learn this and you, Do this almost as a muscle memory response um, by years of
0: doing this kind of work. Well, let me let me just say up front, if you end up getting a shot of Sasquatch, I get dibs (laughs) on having you on here before you go on CNN and ABC and everything else. What is you shoot these shots? You come back. What's your normal culling process? Are you are you somebody are you a Lightroom user, a Photoshop user? What? I'm 99% Lightroom. Okay. When you bring your images into Lightroom, are you a person who does color tags for culling or are you doing star ratings? Um,
1: I do star ratings and I'm kind of on the extreme end of things. So I only show, you will only see my absolute best work, nothing else. Which is how
0: it should be, by the way.
1: I, I agree. I agree. So, you know, an image will have – so I do I, – I, oftentimes I do a multi-pass calling process, right? I will do a very fast calling process in that I will tag, you know, I give images a one star for images that I want to that, – that I think may be keepers. And I'm doing this very quickly. I'm just going through, you know, kind of like tapping those keys, you know, one after the other. One zooming next, in next,
0: or one not one. zooming in? You're looking for – zooming in. I'm okay. looking for composition at this point.
1: All right. Um, you know, obviously, if an image is clearly out of focus, then you know it gets a zero. So right. I tag only the ones that I keep. Once I do that, I go ahead and delete all the zeros and okay. keep the one. And now that has deleted 90% of my images, sometimes 98% of the images. <clears throat> then I go through a, neg- a second culling process in which I select my five stars. And then they go to five stars.
0: You jump from one to five.
1: I jump from one to five. If it's okay. not a five, I don't really... I typically you don't, don't care, really right. care. There's one exception to that. And I sometimes add a four star. And this is um, this is a force of habit in that when I was shooting uh, and providing images to magazines, I can count probably on one hand with a lot of missing fingers, the number of times that a magazine editor picked my favorite image. They would always oh, pick yeah. other images, right? So, you know, I will have my five My image, its my favorite is number five, but I may have others that are fours that are not inside my favorite, but maybe images that I know from a natural history perspective may be interesting to an editor because they show maybe an interesting behavior or interesting environment or something like that. Um, So, and but I do that less and less nowadays. So sometimes I'll have a four um, just out of habit because I don't really publish in magazines all that much anymore. But it's really, it goes from, you know, Zero to a one and then to a five. And that's okay. It. So, it's a
0: five, so, a shot like this, though, you mark it a five, clearly a five, right. by the way. Thank what you. would you have done to this in post? Just generic, you know, a helicopter view, what would you have done?
1: Um, well, really, uh, from this perspective, it was really all about adjusting my dynamic range in the image, right? Making those, those darks dark while still retaining some detail in there, making my snow nice and white, uh, making sure that. I have the right level of, of sharpening because to me that's one of the most important things is apply the right amount of sharpening. And then it may, it may turn into maybe cleaning up, um, you know, some dirt in the image, you know, right. and dirt could be like real dirt. It could be, you know, some dirty snow that got kicked off by a, another bison going by. You know, it could be a, a bison But that in some way the hurts ground.
0: the composition.
1: There, exactly. That, this, that detracts. From the view. So, one of the other things that you may have noticed on my images as you were going through them is that not only do I try to accentuate the environment that the images that my subjects are in, but the images tend to be very simple and straightforward. In that, it's really without a doubt, when you look at an image, what this image is about and what subject is, what you should be looking at. And I think most images should be that way.
0: Yeah. So, not, not have overcooked. An,
1: Exactly, not overcooked. So if you have an image you've had something that's distracting, I want to try to remove that, you know, to, to a certain limit. I'm only using Lightroom. I typically don't remove or add elements to the scene. Um, but you know, in an image like this, let's say, for example, there was a a, a a traffic sign back there, or let's let's say something like that. I may remove that traffic sign that, okay. that was there. Um, but honestly. I try to do as little editing as possible. Um, I, like I mentioned before, I was a, a systems, a computer systems engineer in a previous life. I've spent more time behind a computer screen than I care to to spend. So I tend to spend as little time as possible on the digital darkroom. See, I Now don't... you
0: just mentioned my world because I'm an old school MCSE myself. So,
1: right. So, but I mean, my... it's just, it's, I don't, you know, I don't like spending, I don't, particularly enjoy sitting in front of the computer editing images. I love seeing the images, but I don't particularly enjoy sitting there and editing an image. So usually, you know, my rule of thumb is if I cannot, if I'm, if I'm spending more than two to three minutes on an image, then I should have shot it better. I didn't do a good job capturing it.
0: Well, and you, you mentioned something earlier I want to reinforce, and that is only showing your best work. One of the big problems that I see is people go out and they shoot a thousand images and then they dump 50 of them on social media. And it's like, you know what? I'm sorry, if you shot a thousand images, in my opinion, the odds of you having 50 really good ones are slim. Post only your best work. There are people, I'm not, but there are people who think I know what I'm doing. That's only because that's all they see, right? Right. Uh, So don't, you know, again, uh, there's an old quote that I love from a friend of mine and that is, Something to the effect—I'm paraphrasing now. Don't judge. Uh, now I got to think of what the actual quote <laughs> is, but it's don't judge your B-roll by everybody else's A-roll, right? right? Don't don't judge your entire set of images by right. what you see from somebody else because they're only showing you their best, and that's how you should perform it too. So let me let me ask you this. When you go out in a scene like this, because, again, I don't shoot in the snow very often, but you can have fog occur. Do you acclimate your gear somehow before you end up shooting to avoid it fogging it up the lens? It depends on the situation.
1: So here in, in Yellowstone, especially, you know, typically in, in the Rocky Mountains, you know, the, the, the environment is super dry. This is very, very, very dry, even though it's snowing. The snow is fluffy. It's like, it's, it's like powder because it's so dry. Um, so here you don't need to acclimate your gear as you're going from the vehicle, let's say, or from indoors outside because it's super dry outside. It's actually okay. drier outside than it is inside when you do have to acclimate it is when you are done shooting for the day and you're going back into your hotel, back into your room where, you know, the, the, the level is a lot higher. And your gear can then fog up. Their lenses can fog up and whatnot. Again, this is in this situation. None of the situations, like if you go to the tropics and you go from the indoors to the outdoors, the outdoors has a lot more humidity. So, yes, you do need to acclimate your gear as you're going out. But in and this for you,
0: that's just get it, leave the lens on, but get it outside, let it sit in that temperature. It may fog up, but just wait for it to clear.
1: Well, um, yes and no. Like the best thing to do is actually, and this is oftentimes what I do when I'm going in after, the, after I'm done with the day, is put your camera inside your camera bag, zip it up, bring it indoors, and then leave it there for a couple hours to acclimate slowly, and then you won't get any fogging.
0: So it's a little bit of insulation, as it were, to control the speed with which it happens.
1: Exactly, because often what happens is for lenses, you may get some fogging inside the lens, and that can take a very long time to clear up. Okay. Um, hours and hours. So you don't, you want to avoid getting, you know, that fogging happening inside the lens.
0: So here is not so big an issue in the tropics. Absolutely. It's an issue. So let me ask you this one photographer that you love that people may not know about or may know about, but if they don't, they should look up.
1: Huh? So uh, I didn't so tell you it was going to be easy. Oh no, that's good. I have, I, I have a number of them. Um, and do you want someone contemporary or not? Whatever you want to share. So one of my inspirations, and as a photographer that not many people know, so it goes along with what you were asking, um, is Elliot Porter. Um, Elliot Porter, incidentally, I live in Maine now, and Elliot Porter shot in Maine. His family had an island in Maine. And he was um, one of the first guys out there shooting nature and wildlife with in color. You know, this was, you know, Back in the, I don't know, back in the 50s, maybe, um, where, you know, people, I mean, you you talked about uh, shutter speed in, you know, a fourth of a second, eighth of a second, you know, tenth of a second. And the, he was shooting not necessarily big animals or birds in flight, even though he did birds in flight later on with, with newer equipment. But he was very early on shooting um, landscapes and animals in the landscapes as well, animals in their environment. So um, Elliot, Porter. Yeah, look, Elliot Porter, look him up. It's, it's pretty inspiring. And I, I, I've actually, and you know how, when you have someone that inspires you and especially when you're learning, but not only when you're learning, even later on, you try to recreate some of the people's work or you draw inspiration from other people's work. I have recreated, you know, a number of his images, you know, most famously, he's got a beautiful lunar moth on ferns that he photographed, that I've photographed, that same image a number of times, trying to recreate a similar look to what he's done.
0: Okay, so I've been putting it up again. If you're watching the video, you will have been seeing lower thirds under Juan as we've been doing this for his website, uh, which is juanpons.org. Uh, his okay. Facebook and his YouTube, you can find him at Juan Pons. So look him up. The YouTube channel is really good. Follow him on Facebook. Instagram, it's jpons. Uh, All of those links will be in the blog post. The blog post is going to be at BehindTheShot.TV. Head on over there. Check that out. You can subscribe there. If you'd leave us a review, by the way, in iTunes, I would appreciate it very, very much. Juan, thanks so much for being here, man. I really appreciate it.
1: Well, thank you for having me. It's always fun, and it's great to have someone talk to you through an image that you've taken and try to dissect it and see what they see in it. Uh, I always enjoy that. You know, that's part of what I really like, on all, especially on the workshops that I, that I teach, is not just the, what I'm teaching, but what I'm learning from the students and the different um, perspectives people have on, on the same image. To me, that's one of the, the, the most interesting things about photography, the different perspectives we all have, even of the same scene.
0: Could not agree with you more. Again, thank you so much for joining us. My guest today, Juan Pons. You can find all the links at BehindTheShot.tv. I've got a small gallery of Juan's work there. I've got a little thing I wrote up about Juan. So head on over there, BehindTheShot.tv. Check it out. Another quick reminder for you. We've got the YouTube, uh, not YouTube group. I'm sorry. I am on YouTube too, shot. But We've got the new Flickr group. Head on over to Flickr. Look for the Behind the Shot group. Join us there. That'll be used hopefully down the road for some things that we do throughout the show. Again, I'm looking at maybe teaming up with Don Komarechka on some things, Uh, so head on over there. Join the group if you have not. This is Behind the Shot, the show where we try and get inside the mind of great photographers like Juan by taking a closer look behind one of their shots from conception To completion, all those stories and challenges that happen in between, I'm Steve Brazel, and we'll see you on the next show.